This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hello from Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate, and today I have the pleasure of finally getting to interview one of my friends, Dr. Fabian Proft, regarding his work not only through Grappa, but what he's presenting this year at ACR 2022. Fabian, thank you so much for doing this with us today. It's been a long time coming for us, hasn't it? Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure, and I think it's great that we finally make it. Absolutely. Not just Twitter anymore, right? Absolutely. We're friends in real life. So, you really presented a great abstract this morning, which was 0383. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about neural networks. Yes, absolutely. And I think the main important highlight that I want to give is we know that we have artificial intelligence. We have it in our daily life. If we are using Google Maps, if you're driving in our car, and it is also implemented in many other medical specialities, like in radiology, um, oncology. But now we also need or should implemented in rheumatology and what we were um, presenting today was that we were testing our artificial neural network that has been previously trained and validated in our own cohort and in a training cohort and now we collaborated with a pharmaceutical company UCB and we externally checked our algorithm with the rapid study data and which is um, also particularly important that and rapid AXPA patient with radiographic access bar but also with non-radiographic access bar were included and uh, the images based on which they were then allocated to one or the other arm of the study were read by central readers, three uh, different external experts and all of them have not been previously involved in the um, training of our algorithm so we externally checked how is it participating or uh, yeah, working with external experts and also how can it differentiate between radiographic and non-radiographic HSPA in a cohort from multi-center, multinational patients. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. So do you think this is the future? Based on our data, I think it can be the future because we have a um, really excellent agreement with the three external experts. And when we are all thinking about how it is currently done in uh, multi-center studies, you are making the x-ray at your center, yeah. then you send it to a vendor maybe sitting in San Francisco, right. then he or she is sending it back to another expert center around the globe. It again, takes a little bit of time until the image is read, yes. going back to the vendor, and until I receive the result, easily five to ten days can go and land. And now with the artificial intelligence, it could be you just upload the image, and yeah. you, after two seconds you have the um, result, which is close to expert level, and it's really reliable, because if you feed one image to the algorithm, a thousand times, you will a thousand times get the same result out of it. So I think that's really interesting. And you bring up something that's really important too. There was, um, you have data on both non-radiographic and radiographic XFA. I know there's a lot of discussion regarding these two disease states. Are they one? Are they different? So having AI support for that, especially in terms of a neural network, it makes sense. I mean, it gives us a little more um, depth of what we do, right? It allows us to have a little bit more of a say and hopefully I, I absolutely confidence. Agree. <laughs> confidence, absolutely agree. And I think the important point is that we only fed images of patients with the final diagnosis of actual spa yes. into the algorithm, and then we get help with the classification. Is this still non-radiographic, or is it already progressed to radiographic actual spa? 
So is there, do you see this being implemented anytime soon? Or I know there are clearly hurdles, right? Tech always has hurdles, but it's interesting. Honestly speaking, the collaboration with the pharmaceutical company UCB was so fruitful. And I think really in upcoming multi-center, multinational RCTs involving both non-radiographic and radiographic spa, I think it should be implemented. That is awesome. I always love it when you can give me a real definitive. Like, <laughs> that's what I get from you on Twitter. I expect nothing less in life. <laughs> so um, your work with Grappa, very, very, very quickly. I just want to highlight that because it's something that I really respect you for and something you're very passionate about. Is there any anything new on the horizon from the young Grappians? Thank you so much. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is really important because I currently have the honor to lead the Young Grappa Initiative. Yeah. And it's so so great to have all the enthusiastic people from around the globe collaborating and which is so important about Grappa is that we are having dermatologists and rheumatologists yes. and so we really have interdisciplinary um, collaborations going on but what we are missing a little bit is a high representation of dermatologists in our young Grappa community so really? I think this is a close call out to the community <laughs> if you have a dermatologist that is interested in psoriatic disease come and join young Grappa we're looking for more germs. We need the collaboration anyway. So. Absolutely. Col collaboration is key. It is. It absolutely is. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your passion, your dedication, your art with me, as well as the science, of course. And as always, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate and follow Dr. Proft at... At Dr. Proft. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a Room Now reporter at ACR 2022 here in Philly, coming to us live. So, I'm going to interview you, and I hear you did a poster, and I'd like to know about your systematic review. So first, can you introduce yourself and where you're from? Sure. I'm Dr. Kara Smang. I'm a rheumatologist at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Great. So you had a poster at this meeting and it was a systematic review. So tell me what it was about and tell me why you did it. Well, we did it because so many of our patients with rheumatoid arthritis struggle with the side effects of methotrexate and the prior reviews of tapering methotrexate when combined with a targeted therapy have focused on tapering methotrexate when combined with TNF inhibitors only. And now patients may be taking methotrexate in combination with IL-6 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors. Also, patients need Patients and physicians need a clinically useful quantification of risk of losing remission when tapering methotrexate in this context. Right, so let, getting it straight, it was only randomized controlled trials, and it was trials where you stopped or didn't stop the background CSD MARD, which was usually methotrexate, and most of them, they were all advanced therapies, and most of them, the patients had to be in pretty darn good state, or you wouldn't uh, demedicate methotrexate. So with that in mind, and that's a lot of randomized controlled trials, about what percent of people would flare? Is there a price to pay for stopping methotrexate? Yes, what we found was that uh, in these 10 studies, nine of which were RCTs, there was one study that was a long-term uh, extension study uh, that was comparative but not randomized. Um, we found about a 10% reduction in the ability to sustain remission when tapering methotrexate from IL-6 inhibitors, JAK inhibitors, abatacept, and TNF inhibitors. 
So if I'm talking to a patient next week in clinic, because they always say, you know, doctor, I feel a lot better. Can I lower or stop my methotrexate? And I think we know what that usually means. They've already started to lower or, in fact, maybe stop. But what would I tell them then? Is, is this a good thing to do? Is a, is a 1 in 10 chance of losing your good disease state worth it? What would you tell people? Well, I'm glad you asked that specific question. We did calculate a risk difference of minus 0.05, which in plain language means if one were to taper methotrexate uh, in 20 patients, 10% or two patients would lose remission. So I would tell my patient there is a risk of losing remission, that overall risk of losing remission is low. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is the longest follow-up was only up to 18 months. And there were some studies, including yours, that showed a possible worsening, not significant, but a possible trend of worsening functional and, patient, and other patient-reported outcomes. So we really do need to follow you uh, to my patient over time. Right. And you need to let me know right away if you experience right. any worsening so we can get you back on your former dose. Right. That, that's great. So I think two take-home messages. One, a lot of people get away with it, at least in the short term. And number two, please tell us if you're talking That's to the patient, right. if you're lowering methotrexate or stopping, because you want to cue them that if you're losing ground, we'd probably restart and see how you do. Well, I think that's a great study, and thank you for doing it, and I think it's clinically relevant. So please please follow us at Room Now at ACR Philly and all the other great Room Now things happening. Thank you. Hello, it's Mike Putman with Room Now, uh, reporting live from ACR 2022. I am very excited to be discussing Abstract 1677, which is a plenary session tomorrow uh, with its uh, author, Max Koenig. Would you like to introduce yourself? Happy to, Mike. Uh, my name is Max Koenig. I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Well, I am very excited about this uh, abstract for a couple of reasons. The first being that I feel like it has great potential. And the second being that I think many of us don't know anything about how CAR-T works. So this looked into the use of CAR-T um, in antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. It's been an exciting area for us lately in the wake of this recently published study in Nature Medicine about lupus. Uh, but there are some specifics to the study that you did that I thought were particularly exciting. So for starters though, would you like to give us a primer on what CAR-T is? <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm going to make it a little bit more complicated by introducing another concept because there are slight variations, but the important thing is that all of these cellular therapies that we're talking about are basically engineered T-cells. In the current state, these are used in cancer immunotherapy, uh, typically for treating B-cell cancers. We have about six FDA-approved products at the moment, all used for cancer indications, none of them for rheumatic disease. But obviously, as we heard over this conference, there's a lot of clinical, preclinical noise in this area and a very exciting thing. So when we talk about cellular therapies, we're really thinking about engineering a T-cell. So generally, uh, we take autologous T-cells from a patient, so they are aphorist, and then you engineer in multiple different ways. For CAR T-cells, you would use some mechanism to introduce a new genetic segment that encodes for a CAR, which is a chimeric antigen receptor, which then has the ability to bind to a specific um, target that you're going after. Typically in the moment, this is CD19 or another B-cell marker. Now, that would do 
pretty much equivalent things that B-cell depleting antibodies do, but in a more potent way. Now, I'm going to make it a little bit more complicated by saying there are more than one way to engineer a T-cell. Um, so in, in our case, we were interested to think about like where could these therapies go in the next 10 years. And we're particularly interested in figuring out if there are ways that we can engineer the T-cell to not only deplete all B-cells, but really just go after the autoreactive B-cells that cause the disease and leaving the 97 to 95% of B-cells that are normal and protect us untouched. So we're doing this actually by not engineering or introducing a CAR, but by engineering the T-cell receptor directly. So what we're calling um, the therapy that we're working on is actually a catcher, a chimeric autoantigen TCR, T-cell receptor. I like that. You need a good name for something that's going to stick. It needs to be catchy. <laughs> no, but I actually, I also truly like the concept. I think that uh, I am maybe inappropriately skeptical of the lupus data uh, because I also think that we already have B-cell depleting agents. But the idea of targeting a specific subset of B-cells sounds truly revolutionary to me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did in this particular study and how that fits in? Absolutely. So uh, this is more of a proof of concept in the preclinical space at the moment. So we're, we're basically figuring out whether something uh, as specific as we hope to do can actually be done. So the hypothesis is that we can take somebody's T-cells and engineer them in a way that they could really go after a specific subset of B-cells. So in, in the case that we first applied this, we're going after antiphospholipid syndrome, specifically um, because we know that there are pathogenic antibodies that target um, beta-2 glycoprotein, specifically domain 1. And if you inject those into a mouse, the mouse develops APS. So it's pretty straightforward. And if you block it, the mouse doesn't develop APS. So, you know, if you were able to go after that subset of B cells, uh, it has a lot of potential to potentially, you know, deplete that subset of B cells, but prevent the common complications that we have with B cell depleting antibodies and probably also with CAR T cell therapies, which is infection, no vaccine responses, decreased anti tumor immunity. I want to dwell on that briefly because that was another reason that I was somewhat skeptical of CAR-T is that the risk of somewhat serious immune reconstitution syndromes and sort of hyperinflammatory states is not, it was relatively high, somewhere around 10 or more percent. So um, this particular uh, approach that you're doing, you think may have less of that. Can you explain why? Because I think it is actually quite uh, tangible and it makes a lot of sense. Right. And you know, to be fair, there's not a lot of data at the moment, so this is mostly speculative. And, and, and like extrapolating a little bit from the cancer literature, where we know that if you um, target patients who have a B cell cancer, but the cancer is in remission um, or fully depleted, they have less cytotoxicity, like less CRS, less side effects. It's not perfect, but that's the trend. Now, it really comes down to, I think, the amount of target cells that you're going after. So in cancer, your whole body is basically auto, like, pathogen, like cancerous B cells. So the burden of target cell is high, so you have a lot of T cell activation, a lot of immune side effects. Um, if you compare that to autoimmunity, where we typically have a very normal number of T cells in general um, uh, and B cells in general, um, you can imagine that uh, in that setting, the fraction of B cells that you're really trying to deplete is low, right? And even just 
you know, just having regular B cell depleting, depleting all B cells is still a relatively small burden of B cell number compared to somebody with cancer. So I think there's a, a correlation between the number of target cells and the number of T cell activation and the number of immune, immune side effects. Makes a lot of sense. So in your study, how successful were you at targeting these specific B cells in this preclinical study? Right. So I want to say we're early, right? This is proof of concept. But we're, we will be able to show that by engineering the T cell receptor directly, by introducing uh, autoantigen into the T cell receptor, in this case beta-2 glycoprotein 1, we're able to take away the native reactivity of the T cell receptor and replaces with a new ability to bind specifically the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein D1 specific B cells, the autoreactive B cells. So we're able to show that we can target and specifically deplete that subset of B cells, but not touch the normal B cells. Very, very cool. So uh, the biggest question of the day, what's next for this? Where's your next step gonna be? Well, we, we got us, the hope is, right, that we can translate it. So we'll gotta test it in, in great detail in preclinical models. And then the big question is like, how can we translate it effectively, right? Um, there is a lot that I think needs to be figured out. I think this is always the process, but the hope is that 10 years from now, we might be at a place where some therapy in that space could become to, uh, available for our patients. Wow, that's very cool. Ten years from now, I'll be reflecting on this and thinking that I was there on the first stage. You're like, Max, where, where is this? <laughs> exactly. Right. No, no, I'm optimistic. Uh, well, thank you so much for following our coverage at Room Now. Um, thank you so much, and congratulations on the plenary session. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yep, anytime. <laughs>
Uh, and tell me about your oral presentation you, you gave. Yes, so yesterday I gave a presentation looking at the examination of treatment response to with mycophenolate mofetil in black versus white patients with scleroderma. Specifically, we looked at patients with ILD and cutaneous disease, in particular the diffuse cutaneous subtype. And the goal of our study was to evaluate was there a significant difference in treatment response, in particular because unfortunately black patients have been known to have more um, aggressive disease phenotype as well as um, more diffuse cutaneous disease. So we looked at patients over um, a five-year period and we ca calculated their um, change in MRSS or change in FEC percent predicted over that five-year time period at six and 12-month intervals. And what we were able to find is that over time, the annualized rate of decline in FEC for black patients was not as significant as white patients. It was barely stable, actually, and the white patient had more of a decline. decline. But when looking at the baseline FEC, that number was much lower in black patients at 66% compared to 81% in our cohort. And this data is from Johns Hopkins, even though I'm currently at Georgetown, just to clarify. <laughs> um, and essentially, we found that when looking at subgroup analysis in terms of when MMF was started versus how many indications they might have been using MMF, as well as autoantibody and um, scleroderma subtype, this trend of black patients having a more stable FEC compared to white patients was pretty consistent. And then we also looked at patients when we restricted the analysis to patients with a baseline FEC of 70%, and even in that case, it ended up being qualitatively pretty similar, though it wasn't as statistically significant as the other subgroups. And similarly, in looking at cutaneous uh, disease, in terms of the modified Rodin skin score, we saw that white patients actually had um, they, well, both, both groups had a significant decline in their MRSS each year over time. However, this decline was actually more substantial in white patients compared to black patients. Um, and we're still trying to figure out exactly why that was the case. Um, part of it is maybe potentially that more um, white patients have an RNA polymerase 3 autoantibase subtype as opposed to the SCL70, but um, to, be, to be determined. So is there a delay in diagnosis for African-American patients in order to getting into the group, or, or why do they come in? Is it all phenotype? Yes, so that's actually a really good um, point. So when looking at our data, the age at diagnosis, or age at first non-Raynaud symptom, was actually statistically different between the groups, with black patients being um, having their first symptom around age 42, and white patients having their first symptom around age 49. However, by the time they presented the clinic, it was roughly about three years after that disease, after that symptom started. So that wasn't too different. However, their baseline FEC scores were actually pretty statistically significant. So we're thinking that black patients actually have just a worse or more aggressive disease, and so they need to be diagnosed sooner and treated more aggressively, but it's not that they necessarily have an inadequate response to disease, inadequate response to treatment therapies, more so just a more aggressive baseline. And the reasons for that, we're still um, trying to figure out. Some of the theories are, is there changes in, or differences in social determinants of health? Are there different other genetic predisposition or epigenetics that may be playing a role? And so more work to be done. It sounds like a lot more possible investigation from there. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Excellent. And anything else, uh, tune into Room Now for more coverage throughout Convergence. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2022. 
It's been a wonderful hybrid conference so far with lots of new, exciting information popping up. Rheumatic diseases, including spondyloarthritis, commonly affect women of childbearing age. We try to achieve disease control when prescribing medications to these patients and monitor side effects or response to therapy. But in addition to these interventions, we also consider reproductive health issues that can have an impact on fertility. One of the abstracts on this topic that caught my interest is abstract number 1673. And joining me today is Dr. Sabrina Hamroon to talk more about their study entitled Preconceptional NSAID Treatment Exposure is Associated with a Significantly Longer Time to Conception in Women with Spondyloarthritis. Hello, Sabrina, and welcome to the discussion. Hello, thank you. Could you tell us more about your um, research? Could you walk us through it? Uh, you know, important things, um, important points uh, that you think you know you want to tell the those listeners out there. Um, yes, of course. Um, this uh, study uh, aimed to determine factors associated with time to conception in women with arthritis. Um, this, uh, this disease affects uh, regularly uh, women of childbearing age, and we would like to understand more on their reproductive health and uh, factors um, uh, impacted the fertility in women with the SPA. And uh, to meet this uh, goal and this uh, research question, we um, did an analysis of uh, patients who were included in the GR2 cohort, which is a French cohort, an observational prospective multicentric cohort in France. Um, and we, um, the, the, the main endpoint was uh, time to conception, and we did a, a Cox model or survival model. Uh, to uh, understand factors associated with time to conception in these uh, women. And uh, in the analysis, we found that um, when we uh, analyzed the impact of um, disaturation, um, disease activity, uh, current smoking, body mass index, age of patients, and exposition to different treatments, we found that the, the two factors uh, which were associated with time to conception are uh, age of the patients uh, and uh, also the, the exposition to NSAIDs. Um, patients who were exposed to NSAIDs had an increased uh, time to conception, 2.6 fold in comparison uh, with women who were not. Um, so the, the, the main message of this study is to, to keep in mind the, the deleterious impact of NCs on fertility and to discuss the, um, the discontinuation, the supervised discontinuation of NCs in women with SPA who uh, have difficulties to conceive. Okay, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, it, I understand that this is the first among um it's you know it's uh, it's study in regards to looking into fertility issues in women with axpar right uh there are um we we performed a systematic review of the literature on this topic 
And uh, we found that of 21 studies on um, reproductive health in women with SPA, only four addressed uh, fertility. And uh, these uh, studies were all retrospective studies. Uh, more recently, there is uh, just one study that um, look at the fertility with the prospective design, but there is uh, there is a limited knowledge on this topic in women with SPA. Okay, so it's really yeah, it's really a, a good topic because usually we see well before because we we you know it was initially thought of that um, spondyloarthritis is more commonly seen in men, and now we're getting to see the differences in among the genders in terms of presentation and now um, in terms of fertility issues. So um, it, it gives us more information um, about, you know, how we could, how uh, the importance of giving or considering um, giving these medications to our female patients, because sometimes, you know, when we, when we give the medications or most of the time, we all only consider um, the after, you know, like um, not the preconceptional considerations, but, you know, just um, when, when patients get pregnant or, you know, you, those, those kinds of um, considerations. So um, were you, uh, was there any possible um, explanation or did you see any possible explanation as to why NSAIDs were associated with a longer time to conception? I mean, age, yeah, we it's understandable. But um, with regards to NSAIDs, were you surprised or um, was there any explanation that you could think of um, in terms of the results? Um, yes, the, the results are not really uh, surprising, given the, the disovulation uh, described in the literature with uh, NSAIDs. NSAIDs um, have an effect on prostaglandines, and uh, prostaglandines are um, involved in both ovulation and implantation of the fetus. So uh, that's why uh, NSAIDs have a negative impact on uh, fertility. Uh, and that's uh, what we see in this study. Uh, there is also in the literature a description of um, a dose effect of uh, NSAIDs, especially uh, meloxicam. Uh, and uh, they, they, in the study, they found that uh, there is a dose effect of meloxicam on disovulation. So um, there are some observations of uh, this uh, negative impact in the literature, uh, but it is the, the first time we uh, describe this in uh, SPA patients. Yeah, right. Yeah, good. Um, and in your and it was really seen in your cohort, right? Yes. Um, okay, so you've mentioned about meloxicam. Um, I don't know if it's also part of the study, but um, were you able to see that or uh, characterize the type of NSAIDs that your patients in your cohort receive, that, um, including the dose probably or um, the duration that the NSAIDs were given? Uh, there are uh, 
uh, unfortunately, there is uh, some missing data on the dose of NSAID uh, patients uh, used in this study. Um, so we don't have uh, enough information to uh, to address this uh, this topic. Um, and regarding the the type of NSAIDs, um, we could not do um, sensitivity analysis to uh, um, evaluate the specific impact of each class of NSAIDs because of a lack of uh, statistical power given the limited sample size. Uh, we just have 88 women, so we could not uh, do um, all the analysis we, we would like to do. But, okay, but, yeah. but we, we plan, the, the cohort is ongoing now, uh, so we, we wish to have more and more patients in this cohort to uh, have more uh, statistical power and to do uh, more, uh, to refine the results, to, to, to do more uh, statistical analysis to refine the results. But yeah. it's, it's a good question. Yeah, actually, I was going to my my next question was actually <laughs> what you answered. I was going to ask if there were plans for a future investigation, since, um, as you've mentioned, there is a, uh, the the study has a small sample size, but, you know, um, it 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 creates, uh, you know, even in uh, on the practical side of things, like for me, I would when when i saw your um your your study i was like okay um you know maybe we we should really consider these things including uh, medications particularly among our young patients and we know like NSAIDs are one of the first line therapies that we give for spondyloarthritis so um it's it's really a good study so thank you thank you for doing that okay <laughs> thank you <laughs> all right so um, I, I just have um, a last question before we yes. probably wrap up the discussion. So what do you think will be the impact of, although the sample size is still small and the study is still ongoing, but what do you think will be the impact of your findings in, um, in the NSAID prescribing practices of rheumatologists towards their female spondyloarthritis patients? Uh, I wish that uh, rheumatologists will keep just keep in mind the negative impact of NSAIDs on fertility in patients, uh, in SPA patients, and to to discuss to discuss on a case by case basis the the possibility to switch uh, to a, a therapeutic switch in women who uh, have um, difficulties to conceive for a long time and uh, without any other source of subfertility than a regular use of NSAIDs. I think that uh, we, we should have this in mind that uh, NSAIDs could be a source of subfertility and to, to discuss uh, for every patient, really on a, on a case-by-case basis, uh, the indication of a switch, uh, of, a of a therapeutic switch. Okay, so you've you really raised a good point there with regards to the NSAIDs as you know a, a possible consideration for um, taking a longer time to conception or in terms of fertility. Um, and yes, I do agree that you know it's really an individualized um, treatment, and um, 
it's I guess it's really the shared decision making process between the physician and the and the patient as well. We also have to to um to consider the age of the patients. If a woman has more than thirty five years old, for example, and has difficulties to conceive for a long time, I think that uh, the the uh, a therapeutic switch uh, could be favorable for them. Uh, so yes, it's always uh, a shared decision with the patients. Okay, so um, thank you very much, Sabrina, for joining us today and sharing your time with us to you know to discuss more about your research. And we we will look out for more of the um, of your uh, your your findings in in the future. Um, thank you. So, <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, so um, that has been a very good discussion about um, abstract one six seven three, and I would like to thank again Dr. Sabrina Haroon Hamroon, sorry, for joining us today and sharing her time with us. This has been Sheila Reyes. Um, follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa. And tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2022. Thank you. Good afternoon from Philadelphia. It's day two of ACR Convergence here with Room Now. I'm going to talk to you about one of the Ignite sessions, Abstract 1012. Dr. Alexis Agdi gave a great uh, Ignite chat about her abstract, which looked at opioid use in ankylosing spondylitis and, um, and uh, psoriatic arthritis. And what she found was there's about, uh, about a quarter of these patients were using opioids, 21% in, in, in PSA, 27% in SPA. And what she found was uh, looking at who are the patients that use opioids compared to those that don't. What she found was, not surprisingly, these are patients that are sicker, that have more comorbidities, more likely to be smokers. But um, what she also then wanted to ask is, is there a difference between the way they access medical care, the, the medications that they're on? Could it be that these patients are using opioids instead of um, our classic rheumatic treatment? And that actually was not the case. When they looked at it, they found that patients were more likely to be seen by more physicians, were likely to receive at least as good of uh, medical care in terms of being on the right medicines, often even on more of the, these medicines. So um, what is it about these groups? It's not just that they're necessarily having opioids placed on, in place of these um, disease-modifying agents, but there might be something that we need to do a better job in identifying these patients and treating these patients appropriately so that they are not using opioids to treat rheumatic disease. Have a great day from ACR. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Linage from Glasgow. I hope you had a great time for day one of ACR. I actually surely did, um, and I'm really glad to be here with you again for day two. Um, a couple of abstracts today I want to um, discuss with you. Um, and you know, this is a very common situation that I've got, at least in my practice, 
with either ACSPA or um, psoriatic arthritis patients that you know failed to respond to a first TNF inhibitor and then the question always is do we switch or do we cycle and you know we do have data um, suggesting that maybe switching for a different mechanism of action in RA would be more efficient we don't really have that um, data for PSA or axial spondylar arthritis so first abstract is 1499 presented as a poster by uh, Philip Mies. So basically what they did is they looked into the Corevitas um, um, registry. Uh, and this is AXPA and PSA patients, but they looked specifically into the AXPA um, patients. And it was only a small number, it was about 80 patients. But um, they looked into those who's been cycled to a second TNF inhibitor after an inadequate response to a first one. And what they saw is that the um, percentage of good response after the six months of the second TNF inhibitor is actually really low. Um, in fact, at six months, only 15% were reaching um, ASTAS low disease activity, 7% were showing an, a minimally uh, clinical um, improvement, and basically zero patients were having a major improvement. So um, this is not very encouraging and this is not very suggestive of, you know, um, showing we should probably not cycle for these people. Um, now moving to the second abstract, 1600, um, presented by Alex Ojdienal. Basically, it's the same um, registry, Corevitas, but at this time they looked into PSA patients. And basically, um, it was about 400 and they looked into those who um, switched versus those who cycled towards the second TTNF and it was in PSA patients this time, not in AXPA. And um, there are a few things that I found out. So first of all, there was about 50% switching and 50% cycling. Those who switched for a different mechanism of action in, in uh, general had a higher disease activity, higher severity of psoriasis. And um, on top of that, um, they also were less likely to have a minimal uh, disease activity state. Now, what are the results? Actually, at six months, they showed that those who were switching in comparison to those who were cycling were more likely to achieve minimal disease activity, um, about seven times more likely, actually. They were also three times more likely to uh, reduce their pen scores and two times more likely to reach an HASDQ inferior to 0.5. Now we need to keep in mind that these are not necessarily, were not necessarily significant, they were mostly trends here and it's probably uh, with confidence interval um, usually crossing one, uh, probably because of a small sample size, but these data are quite suggestive that we should probably switch more than we cycle. Um, so that was um, this for today. I hope you um, are enjoying the conference. Tune in on rumnow.com for daily ACR coverage and I'll see you soon. Hi, it's uh, Mike Putman from the Medical College of Wisconsin, reporting live from ACR 2022 for uh, Room Now. 
Uh, I wanted to share a very interesting and exciting thing that we saw at the plenary session today, which is a phase two randomized controlled trial in Sjogren's syndrome. We haven't seen quite enough of those, and it's always exciting when you have an opportunity to talk about one. So this study talked about remibrutinib, which is a BTK inhibitor. It looked at uh, SDI scores at 24 weeks, and it showed a significant benefit, which is very exciting. A positive trial on Sjogren's is very welcome. <clears throat> the problem is that it looks like it did that mostly by affecting things like laboratory abnormalities and maybe a very small benefit to salivary flow. Another outcome measure in the trial was the ESPRI index. This looks at joint pain, fatigue, and dryness, the things that really matter to patients. And unfortunately, there was no significant benefit for that outcome measure. I think this is a classic example of what happens in trials where we see a benefit that looks exciting with some esoteric composite outcome measure that none of us can fully apply in clinical practice. But if you ask the question, is this really going to improve a patient's quality of life? Is it going to make them feel more energy, more or less dryness, less joint pain? The answer to this drug appears to be probably no. We need more information, hoping for a phase three and more, uh, uh, more data to come. But in the, in the until then, unfortunately, I'm a little less optimistic than I'd hoped to be. Thanks so much. Uh, be sure to follow Room Now for all of our great content at the meeting this year. <laughs>